You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Josh Patterson. Glad to be back from my sabbatical. On today's episode, Adam Hawkins and I are going to have a discussion with Matthew Lee Anderson and Dr. David Stevens about physician-assisted suicide and how Christians are supposed to view the issue. Then we're going to hear from one of our covenant members, Dr. Thomas Hudson, who's devoted his life and ministry to end-of-life care. This is Josh Patterson and Adam Hawkins. Adam serves as a spiritual formation pastor at our Plano campus. And again, we're here with special guests Matthew Lee Anderson and Dr. David Stevens. Matthew is an author and the founder of Mere Orthodoxy. His books include Earthen Vessels, Why Our Bodies Matter to uh, Our Faith, and The End of Our Exploring, a book about questioning and the confidence of faith. Matthew's pursuing his Ph.D. in Christian Ethics from Oxford University. Dr. Stevens is the Chief Executive Officer of Christian Medical and Dental Associations. He's the author of Jesus, M.D., Beyond Medicine, and the co-author of Leadership Proverbs. He previously served as a missionary and later as the Medical Director of Samaritan's Purse. Currently, Dr. Stevens serves as a spokesman for more than 17,000 healthcare professionals and has appeared in such places as CBS Evening News, ABC World News, MSNBC, Fox News, and BBC World Television. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you. We're going to jump yeah, right into it. Up. Yeah, you bet. We're going to jump right into it. As, as you guys know, we're going to be talking about physician-assisted suicide. And really where, where we want to start here is kind of defining the terms. And so we've got physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia. Are these the same things? How do we nuance them? And if you guys could just jump right in there and just kind of talk about the difference between physician-assisted suicide and a situation where a doctor may, quote-unquote, pull the plug on a dying patient. How do we understand these terms? Let's just go ahead and start there. Well, physician-assisted suicide is when a doctor prescribes a lethal medication to a patient and they decide to take it. Um, Euthanasia means the doctor actually gives a lethal injection. He actually kills the patient himself. So one is the physician is an accessory to the patient's death, and in the other instance, they're actually causing it. Euthanasia can be voluntary. The patient consents to it and asks for it. Non-voluntary, the patient's comatose or incompetent and uh, can't give consent, or it can be involuntary. The patient can give consent, and the doctor just decides uh, to do it. And all three of those types of euthanasia are actually happening in Europe already um, in places where this has been legalized. The difference between pulling uh, the plug and physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia is in a couple areas. Uh, Pulling the plug is actually discontinuing uh, a burdensome or futile treatment in a dying patient. In other words, uh, the patient decides uh, that they don't want a treatment and they think it's too burdensome. Please stop my uh, um, renal dialysis. I don't want it anymore. And they die from renal failure or it can be futile. You're just prolonging the dying process. There's um, in a situation where you're just making it rougher on the patient. And then intent, and the Supreme Court talked about this, the intent with pulling the plug is not to take the patient's life. It's to take away that burdensome treatment. If I had this happen with my own mother-in-law, she was on a respirator, had bad lung disease. She had said, 
uh, I don't want to continue on a respirator. She went downhill. They put her on. We asked if that was okay until the family got there. They got her off of it, and then she needed it again and said, no, I don't want it. Our intent was not to kill her. If she had it walked out of the hospital, we'd been delighted. Uh, but in the situation of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, the doctor's intent is actually to make the patient dead and, uh, and to do that uh, supposedly in a humane manner. Um, thank you. That's very clarifying. This is Adam, by the way. And um, just a follow-up on that, um, you know, what is the landscape currently in America? Why is this an important conversation to be having? I'm, I'm wondering legally where we are um, in terms of where is it legal uh, to to perform euthanasia? Um, I'm, I'm also curious uh, about um, where you guys might see this heading. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Europe and what's happening there now. Do you see that uh, as maybe the future for where America is heading? This is now legal in a number of states, Oregon, uh, California, most recently, Washington. People claim it's legal in Montana, but it's just tolerated. There's no law in the books making it legal. And Vermont, uh, where it's legal. There's efforts underway last year and uh, in 37 different states to legalize it where it's not legal. Uh, Massachusetts is the main target right now, but other states at risk are New York, uh, New Jersey, Maryland. Uh, you can see you're kind of getting the West Coast and the East Coast, the idea that that's where it's more liberal and more likely uh, to be passed and to create a tsunami to sweep across the country. Um, in Europe, it's legal, has been uh, for many years and tolerated or legal in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Switzerland, and most recently on this side of the pond, Canada has legalized both physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia by lethal injection um, by a reinterpretation of their constitution by their, their Supreme Court. So... Where's it going, Matt? Maybe you want to comment on that, or uh, I can. <laughs> I don't want to take over the whole conversation yeah. here, brother. <laughs> no, no, yeah, that that lays it out really clearly. I think one thing to note is that America is probably further behind in terms of adopting physician-assisted suicide than we might have expected. Um, it's it's a bit strange that it's taken as long as it has, from my standpoint. Um, to gain the traction that it's gained over the last few years. Um, and so I take some comfort from the fact that there's, um, there is some sort of native resistance, I think, in a lot of uh, corners of America still to the idea. As to where it's going, um, it's hard not to look at the trends and look at the, the, the atmosphere of the debate and think that we're fast on a track towards what Belgium is doing, the the, the Underlying principles of the debate seem to be there. The intuitions in uh, our sort of public seem to be increasingly on the side of um, those who would affirm physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, and so, it's, it's from my standpoint, it's really hard to look at it and think, "Yeah, you know, we're we're going to somehow avoid becoming what has happened in Bel Belgium or Canada or some of these other European places and so on." So. That's, that's sort of how I see it going. There's increasingly the assumption that there's lives not worthy to be lived, and they should have the right to 
uh, take their life. But we've got to remember, this is not about giving patients the right to die. Uh, suicide is not illegal, illegal in the United States. And, in fact, you know, it's not like it was uh, a couple hundred years ago where you couldn't get buried in the church graveyard if you committed suicide. This is about giving doctors the right to kill. In other words, to put the medical imprimatur, uh, blessing, whatever you want to call it, on something that we've disdained and, and tried to prevent in society, and that is suicide uh, of patients. And um, by wrapping a, a, a white coat around it, it makes it dignified and, uh, and makes it noble, and increasingly the main group promoting this, Compassion and Choices, the old Hemlock Society, that term didn't sell very well, so who can be opposed to compassion and choice, um, is really uh, pushing this as a noble act. You're now seeing newspaper articles of people having farewell parties before they take their life in California. Uh, Brittany Maynard was a huge poster child for this, a young woman with a glioblastoma. So this has been um, sensationalized and nobleized uh, by proponents as a noble act and uh, something that everyone should be willing to do. Let me jump in here. You, you guys have both mentioned uh, kind of this sense of innate disdain, uh, a native resistance, Matthew, that, that was your terminology there, that there's something innate within us that that rejects this at some form or to some degree, at least uh, society as a whole. But it does seem to be there's a trend that's moving a different direction. I, I kind of want to talk about that. And I think interestingly, uh, over the break, I read uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and uh, I wasn't preparing for anything, but uh, as as I was kind of reading through that, at the end of the novel, this dystopian society that that is created to control, and it controls through this kind of sense of of happiness where there is no suffering and there is no uh, it, life is just basically trivial, and and there is a woman in the novel who is dying. And uh, she's actually dying because they're giving her more drugs, right? She's, she's taking this drug called Soma, and she's dying at the end. And, and they're kind of parading these, these children in there to, to watch and see this and to show them that death is this happy thing. Um, and it, it just reminded me um, – it, it was just kind of a strange, I guess, um, thought or kind of a strange prophecy that Huxley had in this, kind of talking about – um, being able to take death, suffering, dying, which the scriptures would say is a great enemy. It's a great enemy that Christ has ultimately defeated, and we, we're going to talk about that here in a second. But there, but in the novel, they just remove all that, right? There is no suffering. There is no, all all that is to remain is is this kind of happiness. Does that does any of that make sense? What I just said there, or if you guys read this, thought of that, is it my way off base? Somebody talk to me. <laughs> I wouldn't argue with Huxley. Uh, <laughs> I think he was a prophet in many ways in our society yeah. and what yeah. we're seeing today. But, uh, you know, the whole bottom line of this is that life's worth is based on enjoyment and happiness. And right. if you don't have that, then life has no worth. There is no future, and you might as well end it. And um, and then the other side of that is unhappiness or suffering is something to be avoided at any cost, even including taking your own life. And, of course, as Christians, we, you know, know that suffering in itself uh, God uses in our own lives. It's not usually when we're happy and enjoying life that God teaches us the greatest lessons. It's when we're going through difficult times and we're more dependent on Him. 
but in some sense, for many people, this is almost shaking uh, their uh, fist in the hand, you know, in the face of God. For some and for others, it's out of fear because the other side sells this by saying, do you want to be hooked up to a respirator, kept alive against your will in some ICU suffering? Uh, which is ridiculous but because anybody can refuse any treatment, but that's how they sell it. And people see it as kind of an insurance policy. Let's, let's let this pass, so maybe if I ever need it, I'd have it, not realizing the dangers of this for them uh, as patients, for their families, for the medical profession, and for society as a whole. Well, it's, it's, it's a bit schizophrenic, our, our attitude towards staff. On the one hand, we resist, resist, resist. We fight it for as long as possible, and we undertake as many means as possible to delay it. And then when the moment comes when it seems inevitable, we want to act in such a way that we take control over it. Um, the one thing that we aren't willing to do is um, not engage in means that might extend our life uh, without um, taking control over the acts and the means of our death. And so I, it's, there, there's a way in which I think the um, disposition or the underlying intuition of most people sets them up to accept euthanasia because death seems so horrific um, that if you can master it by controlling it, you, you'll, you'll absolutely take that bargain if you can get it. If you look at people that are doing this, they tend to be Caucasian, uh, fairly well-off, highly controlling with poor family support systems. And, um, and they're the ones that are taking this step. The trouble is it starts there and it goes to others because if uh, helping people kill themselves is a good thing, uh, then who's to say others don't deserve it? What about the patient with Alzheimer's who's not terminally ill, uh, in the sense of six months yet to live, or someone with a mental illness, or you name it, children, or even in Belgium where, uh, you know, twins did this because uh, they had lost, uh, they were blind and they were concerned they were going to lose their hearing. You know, once you say there's lives worthy to be lived, then where do you draw the line? Um, because suffering, you cannot hook people up a machine and measure that. It's totally subjective. And how can you say to someone, your suffering doesn't merit this? Yeah, yeah. You know, right. this is this is kind of an interesting part. And I, I'll say this, I, you know, um, as I as I've thought about this issue, I've I've really felt that and it might just be because I'm uninitiated, but I've really felt that there's this hole in the debate. Um, at least from a Christian perspective, it's been hard for me to find a unique Christian perspective as it relates to the end of life, as it relates to death, as it relates to um, end of life care. So now talking about medical treatment, um, I I'm curious as to how we as the church, we as Christians should be speaking to each other, speaking to our congregations. I guess if you're a Christian doctor listening, how you should be speaking to your patients, um, and, and, and here's why. I, wanna, I just want to lay this thought out there. And Matt, I'm curious as what you might have to say to this. Um, so it seems to me uh, that when I've heard Christians speak about end-of-life care, um, I've really heard them speak about it from a Western, biomedical, um, you know, interventionist uh, um, kind of framework. And it dawned on me um, that euthanasia really isn't um, or physician-assisted suicide really is not a uh, – it's not a different 
philosophy. It's actually part of the same. And here's what I mean. The way the debates generally set up is you either intervene, 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 and try to prolong your life as long as possible and suffer, or uh, you can opt out of all that suffering by, by doing euthanasia. And I thought to myself, well, really, though, euthanasia is another interventionist, right? A doctor intervenes in some way, either by prescribing or giving you drugs. It's an interventionist, um, biomedical, very Western materialistic um, procedure, really. And so I've thought, well, what's the Christian response? How do, we, how do we talk about what it means to die well? How do we offer an actual alternative vision of end-of-life care? Is it okay to say, I want to go home and be with my family and be with my pastor and, and, and die, you know? Is that, is that an okay thing to do? How, how do we talk to people about that? Yeah. What, what are thoughts there? I mean, I think it's more than okay. I think it's absolutely appropriate and fitting and even even noble. Um, if you look at the way in which death and burial practices have shifted in American culture, it, it was once the case that um, people died in their own homes, and we kept their bodies in their, in, in their homes uh, for a while, and people would come into their homes and visit. We don't do that anymore, in part because we view the, the dead body as a uh, an unsanitary object that we have to remove from our site, we remove them from our cities, uh, we cremate them, and so on and so forth. Um, how we encounter death as a community uh, has a lot to do with um, how we live the rest of our lives and the comfort that we have with suffering and the, the ability that we have to face our own um, pain. And I think the, the willingness to experience those things surrounded by a community of people who are going to support and sustain you, who are willing to carry that burden with you, is something that um, at least undermines some of the appeal of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, if you look at the way in which we leave this life, very similar to the way in which we come into this life. We act as a disproportionate burden on those around us. When we're embryos in the womb, we disproportionately burden our mothers. We, we, uh, <laughs> we begin our lives at great cost and suffering to other people. And we look at that and we say that there's something good about that. There's something good about that for the mothers who sacrifice their bodies on behalf of this new life. And I think the same is true at the end of our lives. There's something good within a community when it, has, when it is burdened and when it cheerfully undertakes the burdens of those who are dying. So, you know, practically, I think uh, churches to undertaking that sort of approach to those who are dying is the right sort of thing. Um, hospice care is the institutionalized form of this. I think hospice care is, is one of the, the best things that we have seen uh, in the last hundred years, uh, one of the best ministries of the church, because it was uh, an evangelical Christian out of, out of Britain, I think, who, who started it, and it's been a terrific movement. So, And that means you can die at home. I mean, I've got one of my former staff members whose mother just went on hospice, still at home, but having symptom control and support um, as she goes through the dying process. We need to understand as Christians there's a time to die. We have nothing to fear from it if we know the Lord. Uh, as the Bible says, there's time to be born, there's a time uh, to die. What's uns uh, really concerning to me is that the word compassion has been uh, grabbed, you know, 
verbal engineering always precedes social engineering, and that's what's happened in physician-assisted suicide. In fact, they don't want to use the word uh, suicide. They call it aid in dying to confuse people, and they come along and say, this is really compassion. Compassion is not a handful of lethal pills. Compassion means coming alongside and helping someone bear their burden as they go through the dying process or through a time of suffering. Uh, physician-assisted suicide is an escape from compassion. Yeah. That's one of the reasons this is so dangerous uh, for physicians to be involved in, because it's a lot of work to take care of a dying patient. It's very expensive to take care of a dying patient, um, and that's true in our society, which makes this scary, because the cheapest form of health care at the end of life is a handful of lethal pills. If you have cancer, it costs a few hundred dollars versus tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, but back to what Matt was saying, there's a time to say we've done what's reasonable, and, you know, there's always one more thing to do in healthcare. We can always think up some new drug or some new trial or something to put on people if that's what they're demanding. And uh, But there's time for us to Christians say we've done what's reasonable, and it's time to go home and be with Jesus in heaven and, uh, and step back. And uh, there, there's not a reason that we have to grasp onto life at any cost at any burden or at the smallest chance of any success in prolonging it. You know, I think on on this show so many times we come back to the Imago Dei, the image of God in humanity, and this is what makes humanity unique, special, um, significant, worthy, worthwhile, uh, from the tomb uh, to the womb, or backwards from the womb to the tomb, right? And um, in, in the discussion, we've kind of talked about that, that that what does make someone matter? What 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 is their worth? Why why does why should we fight for these things? Why is compassion for the dying good? And and so I just want to highlight yet again the the importance of the doctrine of the Imago Dei. We're thinking about the 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 unborn and those who are at the end of their life, and thinking their worth, their value, their significance is tied not to their capacity or their length of days, but to the fact that they are made in the image of God. And I think about. Uh, the the last great enemy, as the scripture talks about death being this last great enemy, where Christ has overcome this last great enemy, He has defeated sin, death, and and the grave, and uh, it, it, which is profound. And so, death then is no longer this enemy that we're facing for the believer, but a servant who ultimately ushers us into the King and into the kingdom of, with Christ. And so, it's this. It is. I like what you said, Matthew, about this opportunity for compassion. And Dr. Stevens, you, you talked about true compassion is this. It's long-suffering with somebody in, in a way that it, you're going along with them. You're feeling with them. You're suffering alongside of them. And, uh, and it, it does cost us more. And there's something, there's something worthwhile in that. There's something beautiful in that. There's something good and true and noble and right in that. And so I want to kind of take that thinking and ask this question, maybe to you, Dr. Stevens, how does the issue of euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, create problems for physicians? And, and you think about the Hippocratic Oath and this idea that, that we're to do no harm, that we're, we're to, you guys are to be healers. And so how, how should a Christian physician kind of begin to think about how all of this collides and comes together? Well, there, you know, this isn't a new idea. Before Hippocrates, doctors both cured and killed. So if you think you're, da- you know, uh, nervous going to the doctor, you can imagine what it was like back then, because you didn't know what they could do to you. Somebody could uh, 
pay them off and they'd knock you off and nobody would be the wiser because they had the knowledge to do that. Um, and so uh, this isn't some new idea that we need to embrace. Hippocrates came along and said medicine can't, fo- can't function like that and came up with the, the foundational issue of the doctor-patient relationship, which is trust. And when a doctor can take a patient's life, it destroys that foundation. A woman will walk into my examining room, tell me the most intimate things of her life, and undress and let me examine her. She won't do that with anyone else, but she'll do it with me. Why? Because she trusts me. And so one of the casualties of legalized physician-assisted suicide is trust. And even uh, um, people doing uh, talking and doing polls on this have find that out. Secondly, it takes no great skill to do this. Uh, Jack Kevorkian was very efficient at killing patients. He was a pathologist. He didn't know one antidepressant from another. It's the easy way out of dealing, you know, this this isn't about doing away with burdensome treatments. It's doing away with burdensome patients, and uh, that's unfortunate. And then it gives doctors way too much power. We can have mass murders, and they go through 10, 15 years of court cases and appeals and multiple judges and juries and everything before that sentence is carried out. And we're giving someone, a physician in society, authorization to do this. And all he has to do is find a colleague or a friend who believes in the same thing, and you can be killed. Uh, this is dangerous uh, for the profession and will ultimately destroy health care. And I think this is where we see a trend in the U.S. where doctors are going to be identifying themselves as Hippocratic or non-Hippocratic as this goes forward and other things in our society, including abortion and other issues. So patients will know when they walk in the door, this doctor won't kill you. Yeah. Taking it out of the abstract, I think about how many people we talk to as pastors who are dealing with really, really um, heart-wrenching situations, whether it's a family member of theirs, whether it's uh, themselves. To face the end of your life um, is is profound and scary and um, and yeah, usually isn't immediate, at least not in our experience here. It's usually a long and drawn out process. And so um, really to have to sit across from somebody and say, it's better for you to endure suffering. Um, it's better for you to continue um, on uh, with dealing with this terminal illness maybe. Um, I guess my question for, for both of you um, is – how do we tell some how how can we as christians say that's the better option how are we able to be bold with the people we are ministering to and yet be empathetic at the same time yeah i think that's i mean it's such an important question if you uh look at um what happened 2 years ago um Brittany Maynard out in california became the poster child poster figure for the the quote-unquote right-to-die movement. Um, but Kara Tibbetts in Colorado, uh, the wife of a pastor um, facing cancer, uh, wrote her way to her own death and created a huge community of people who um, followed that journey, who um, recognized that what she was doing, how she was dying, the way in which she was undertaking her own exit from this world was astonishingly beautiful. It was noble, it was dignified, and it was all packaged within uh, an atmosphere that viewed death as an enemy, but an enemy that has already been defeated 
And that means that um, we don't have to defeat it in the same way anymore. The, the one thing that we can't do is defeat death by employing death. That's not a resurrection. That's not um, how we live as Christians in this world. Uh, and so our means of defeating death are very different. Um, and so I, I, I think if it's not communally grounded, if our pastors and our leaders, and certainly you all at the Bullet Church, you guys, you guys have this model for you uh, in a way that many other church communities have. If our pastors and our leaders are not undertaking their own suffering well and, and demonstrating that for the community, then it becomes much harder for those uh, who we are counseling to, to, to see that suffering can be beautiful and it can be good in its own way when it's in, in, encompassed by a community that has the power of the resurrection within it. Um, but I think, I think we have to live that in order to see it and to be able to articulate it persuasively. I don't agree with that, Matt. I agree with that, Matt. And, and also, you know, the two greatest fears patients have when they're going through the dying process is, number one, abandonment, and number two, being a burden. Mm. And, um, and we need to reassure people that we're not going to abandon them, that we're going to be there, uh, that we're going as a physician. I'm there to say I'm going to walk through this. If it's difficult, we'll find the specialists we need to help alleviate your suffering if I can't deal with that. And I'll be there, and we'll walk this journey together. Um, and then, secondly, family, friends, and others need to send the right message that uh, that they don't see this as a burden but a privilege uh, to come along and suffer. Increasingly in our society, unfortunately, uh, people see compassion as the whole concept of don't make me feel bad <laughs> by your suffering. And we at the church need to demonstrate something different. In fact, as I talk to churches, speak in churches frequently, uh, I say, you know, we usually do a pretty good job taking people care of people that are dying in our own uh, congregations. But what about going down to the street to people that are dying that aren't part of our church group? What a great opportunity, one of probably the greatest opportunities to show Christ's love to them at the end of life. And that's what the hospice movement has tried to do, but I even see that as a work for the local church through visitation, through support, through encouragement, through prayer, through witness, through sacrificial service and acts of love to demonstrate Christ at the time when people are going to be most open to the gospel and most looking over to the other side, wondering what's going to happen and what an opportunity for us to show Christ to them. Those are beautiful words, and just so grateful for both of you, Dr. Stevens, Matthew, for you, and and uh, the insights and things you've given us to think about here. We appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. Thanks for having us. Well, as we just discussed, a really important and relevant topic, physician-assisted suicide. I want to give us an opportunity to listen to one of our covenant members here at the Village Church at the Plano campus, Dr. Thomas Hudson, and his work in ministry as it relates to this topic. Yes, my name is Tom Hudson. I am a urologic medical oncologist and researcher, professor at Baylor University Medical Center in downtown Dallas. Um, my job is a, as a cancer doctor and researcher is to take care of patients that are diagnosed 
um, with cancers. And in my particular field, I'm focusing on um, just bladder, prostate, kidney, and testicular cancers. And, and in that journey with a patient, I'm often um, I'm faced with uh, discussing end-of-life issues. I've always been interested in medicine growing up, and I think it, it's, um, it's weighed on my heart um, to get involved and to serve people that way. I've been interested in science and biology as one of those kind of nerds who was interested in that type of thing through high school. Went into pharmacy first and um, got a degree and became a registered pharmacist and then quickly realized that my passion was to be more hands-on, which led me to medical school. And then I did my training in Ohio up at a place called the Cleveland Clinic. And um, during that time of training, my mom got sick and ended up dying of cancer. And that really, um, if you will, the spirit provoked me at that point to get into oncology, um, having to walk that as a as a family member and, and um, just led me to want to contribute as a doctor to that field, to get involved with cancer research, to, to try to find cures of that. And then as my faith has um, strengthened and evolved over the past uh, 10 to 20 years as God's really moved in my, in my heart to, to really um, focus on ministering to, to patients at the end of life. So in my field, um, most patients that get referred to me, um, for the most part, already have a terminal diagnosis. So I would say um, that um, I have the unfortunate um, privilege to actually um, walk with, with uh, people in the majority of which are going to die under my care. So I, I often say that 90 to 95% of the patients that I have in my practice will ultimately uh, die under my care. You know, as, as my faith has evolved, as the spirits moved in me, it, it's became obvious to me that you know, we live in this Genesis 3 world and we're broken. And even despite my, all of my medical training and, and degrees that I have and the research I conduct, I'm not able to cure a lot of patients. And, and, and so there must be something else that I could provide. And so I think, um, you know, I've just realized over time that there's, um, and having to walk with, with patients, I've developed a skill set that has, has been to try to comfort patients and try to, to, to evangelize if I can. And, and let me just unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, I have all, all the degrees I have, I've never had a class on how to hold the hand of a dying patient. I've, I've never been equipped with that type of skill set. So it's, it's really, um, it's really kind of provoked me to, to rethink of, of things and to, for, for instance, for, for a patient who is, who I have that is saved and we're, we're in the Bible about. So there's quite a few of these folks that we see, you know, I want to be able to walk with them to, to image Christ to them, to, to help comfort them, to, to be able to witness to them at end of life. And then for those patients that I, that I have in my practice who may not be um, saved is to, to, to witness to them and to speak the gospel to them. Um, some of them have, have never heard the gospel before. Others have. Um, but in all of them, um, realize that this may be one of the last opportunities for them to hear the gospel and by faith, um, um, by grace through faith, be saved. And so just really, so it just really resonated with me that if I can't, if I don't have the, the tools of, of medicine 
um, that I can can minister to them spiritually. And it's really become a ministry to me to be able to witness to patients at end of life. So being involved in praying with with patients and, and helping them walk not only through the medical um, area, but also spiritually. Through my own journey in the realization that I haven't been trained well in this, um, you know, I've, I've approached seminary with the idea of becoming better equipped to be able to minister at end of life. And it became clear to me then that, that just as I had not had good education in that, um, certainly I have hands-on experience, but not really education, um, that it was clear that, that my colleagues in seminary and in, in medicine aren't either. And so, so as I went into seminary, it, it, it just, God led me to this, to this thought of, you know, wouldn't it be awesome to try to find a way to bring God back to the bedside? I think as society has evolved, we have been in, we've been led to believe that there should be no place for God at the bedside or for God to be involved in medicine. And, and I think we're seeing that play out now um, in the secular world um, and as um, with different reforms, essentially with physician-assisted suicide, etc. Um, and so to find a way to partner with seminaries and with healthcare providers to, to build an institute or to build something that would allow us to, to educate doctors and um, pastoral care providers on how to better minister at end of life and how to, that you, you can bring God to the bedside. Patients actually want God to be at the bedside. And it's, it's just, it's really been surprising as you go into the data that exists that, that even the atheist wants to be asked about God when they are at their deathbed. So, but we're led to believe that, that that's somehow not something that we can, we can bring up. So, so um, what's really provoked me is to kind of go into seminary to get trained and then to allow God to, to equip me better and to, I really have a desire and a heart to, to build a, what I'm calling a center for healthcare and Christian thought, which would um, be as such a center that would allow education um, and research into this concept of religion and medicine, kind of mining the gap, bringing God back into the equation, making Jesus the cornerstone, um, and being able to educate both pastoral care providers and health care providers um, on, on the value and the necessity of having God at the bedside. I think we need to approach end of life in a concept of finishing well to the glory of God. We live well for the glory of God. We can finish well to the glory of God. And I think we've been left in society with a di- dichotomy. Um, and that is that through the common grace of God, he's given us all these you know, medical technologies. We want to value life. We value life as Christians, um, God-given life. And we want to use the common grace and use the different technologies to extend life as much as possible. So it's a balancing act between a patient on how much how much to to embrace with the medical therapy and when it's time to to let go and 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 through that process one can can finish well one can be one can honor life um and there's great books on this there's a book called finishing well by dr dunlop who who speaks to this of what that means and i encourage anyone who's listening to this to to explore that um, and what that means to finish well and live life to its fullest at the end of life and to value life, to value the sanctity of life. And that completely goes against 
everything that physician-assisted suicide stands for. As always, if there's anything you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, you can find the details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast page. On our next episode, we're going to be discussing the role of art in the new movie by Martin Scorsese, Silence. If you have any questions, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. See you next time. God bless. God bless.